Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Zuvon for November 17th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And if you noticed, I, I didn't enter, welcome Catherine Smith. She has got the Sunday off. But coming up in about 20 minutes, we've got a great guest uh, coming on for the second time, Miss Sonia Van Meter. She is a heavily involved and Texas politics, understands what's going on in the Lone Star State, and she is going to fill us in with pretty much anything we want to ask about um, on Texas politics, so we'll do that. But, of course, there's a lot else going on in the country, um, and we're going to start off with what went on for the last half of the week in the nation's capital, and that would be the impeachment hearings. Tim, um, since you don't have to work a day job anymore, you watched, I guess, pretty much every minute i just watched bits and pieces and then got pretty good recaps uh tell us kind of what your synopsis of it was yeah uh i watched um all of the the public stuff and uh uh a lot of the talking heads punditry before and afterwards um the it to be honest it was a tough week for the president um, this was what he calls the deep state on camera. And what people saw was career-long career people in government, the people that actually are the nuts and bolts of our government, both at home and overseas, and make things work in particular in this case, are are foreign policy. So all three of the officials who participated in these public testimonies were devastatingly effective. They they were very good. They they uh really presented a good picture on television. Uh, you know, going into this I think the Democrats were worried about a, a public backlash. They, they, they don't have to worry about that now. This 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 couldn't have uh, gone more smoothly, and I think they got pretty much everything done that they wanted to do. Uh, Friday, when a- Ambassador Marie Ivanovich was testifying, shockingly, <laughs> our president attacked her in real time via Twitter, and Adam Schiff interrupted the questioning. Uh, I believe it was in the phase where the attorneys were, were, were asking the questions for each side. And he interrupted it and read to her what Trump had said and asked her for her opinion of it. And, uh, you know, she said it was very intimidating, you know, to be to be attacked like this by the president. And uh, it, it, it was almost like Trump was doing an impeachable offense during an impeachment hearing, if that makes any sense. Um, so... There are some other things that happened Saturday, you know, with the um, behind closed doors and uh, um, and and there were some bombshell revelations too. Um, uh, you know, you you've already you've all already heard about um, that there was a second phone call uh, from a Kiev restaurant. With, uh, featuring Ambassador Sunland and uh, Trump, 
and a lot of people heard it. And uh, so, so far, David, everything the whistleblower said has been corroborated. Uh, and and there's a lot more stuff that, that went on yesterday and a lot more stuff coming up this week, like eight different witnesses are going to be appearing um, some of them some big names including Ambassador Sondland so that's where we're at yeah it's um, kind of like Donald Trump has tried to make these um, career diplomats partisan um, figures and you know we know they've worked from you know through multiple presidencies which were Republican and Democratic and um, it didn't matter but he wanted to make, in particular, um, Ambassador Yonlin, uh Yovanovitch, he wanted to make her you know, more partisan. Why do you think he attempted to do that? Well, what else is he going to do? Talk about the facts? I mean, you know, uh, that that's one thing that really he and the Republicans have. Have not been able to do so. What they're trying to do instead, and the Republicans on the committee are trying to do this. Some, especially as the hearings began, it said they're trying to disrupt. They're trying to turn it from, you know, what it is into perhaps a televised episode of uh, a rerun of Judge Judy or something. They're they're manufacturing outrage. For instance, they. They, they really have little else to officer, uh, offer. They're, uh, they, they've got one female on the committee, the Republicans do, a lady from New York by the name of Elise Stefani. And, she, and she's even trying to be their star, and, and uh, she'll, she'll interrupt Swift, and Swift will gavel her down, and then she has the fall outrage. Oh, why are you not allowing me to speak? And conservative media is taking that up a bit. But, you know, they, they don't, none of it seem to be working right now. Uh, they even put Jim Jordan um, from Ohio on the on the committee. He he wasn't on the committee, but they put him on the committee so that basically he'd be in there and be the attack dog that, that none of the rest of them are. I mean, Devin Nunes, yeah, give me a break. He, 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 he comes up with all these crazy conspiracy theories about the Steele dossier. And, you know, it just... Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Devin Nunes, uh, you know, earlier in the week, apparently he brought up something about people wanting to find nude photos of Donald Trump. What in the world was that about? That didn't seem to make any sense to me. I didn't know anybody was looking for those. No, I didn't either, unless it's connected to what did or did not go on over there in that hotel in Moscow <laughs> when Trump went over there. Uh, personally, I would pay to hide nude photos yeah. of his. I, I would pay not to see them. I'd, I'd, I'd absolutely write the Republican National Committee a five-dollar check right now if I did not have to look at nude photos of Donald Trump. So, um, but you're probably right. It, it probably yeah. had to do with you know that rumored um, event in Moscow before he became president. And why would you bring that up if you're a Republican? The stuff where you basically extorted, um, used the American government and, and military aid to you know, dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his family, that's bad enough. Yeah. Why do you want to bring up this other? You don't want to remind people of the well, other crime, yeah. the other rumors, do you? No, number, number one, they're trying to move. If there was any crime, they're trying to move it from Russia to Ukraine. That way it can be, as they said, and the Democrats were behind all of it. And I'm going to tell you what, the Democrats were behind all of this. They did not do a very good job because they lost the election. Uh, but, but, you know, what, what else are they going to do? They have not been sitting there. Arguing with the people who have come to testify 
about the 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 subject matter itself. They they they're they're more into this other stuff of, of about they're attacking the process, how it's a fake how we ought to be about doing the work of the American people and the only person that was working the other day was doing their job was the president and that sort of thing. They're trying to belittle the process because they cannot attack the facts themselves because the facts are there because Trump put them on the telephone for crying out loud. And, yeah, and, and so what and are honestly, they going? Honestly, the Democrats in the House should try to pass a lot of legislation. Of course, we all know it would die in the Senate. It would have never even see the Oval Office desk. But they, they, have, they, they have the tried to stuff. pass a lot of yeah. legislation, David. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, but you got to pass it in the House just to show, hey, we're passing bills. They're, you know, Mitch McConnell's the killer. Uh, put mm-hmm. it back on him because really it's going to be him. It's not going to be the veto pen. Um, one final thing on this because you know we'll probably have more hearings. We'll have more discussion. The early polling, I believe it was Reuters. I, I think I sent y'all the link. Um, it showed that, you know, of course, most people have made up their mind. Don't confuse them with the facts. But of those people that, you know, kind of were in the middle, a little bit of gray area, they're tending to believe the case and, and really the ambassadors more than anybody. I mean, because it's it's not do you believe, you know, Adam Schiff because he's just running the hearing. Do you believe William Taylor? Do you believe the other ambassador? Um, why? I mean, who did Yovanovitch? And that's who they're siding with about, I want to say, was it 60, 20, and then 20 had no clue? Or wasn't that the numbers you remember? Yeah, it, it was something like that. Um, and it's also being heavily watched. 13 million people. What I didn't see the numbers for Friday, but 13 million people watched it live. Uh, Wednesday. Man, that's a lot of people to watch one thing on daytime television. Um, to, to their credit, about all the news divisions, along with the networks, broke in and showed it live. And uh, yeah. so, so it's uh, it's getting a lot of notice. And I, I just can't say enough how effective. Uh, those three people have been that that did it publicly. They they even tried to goad them, especially Wednesday, into giving their opinions on things. And they they would tell them, you know, we're just here to give you the facts. That we're not here to decide if this is an impeachable offense, if a crime's been committed. None of that. That's up to you to decide. They kept telling the Republicans, and you could see the frustration uh, on the faces of the Republicans. You really could. Yeah, and 13 million. I wonder if that's just TV. Does that include live streams? That does um, because not any include part the I internet. That, that yeah, does I not include CNN.com. I, yeah. I would say there was at least that many or more watching it, uh, all or parts of it on the internet, wouldn't you? Yeah, and then you got people that probably watched or read pretty good recaps, even if they were busy and, and with their work day and couldn't uh-huh. watch it. So you know, you've probably got you know probably closer to a hundred million people that are following it fairly closely in some form or fashion, even if it's just watching, you know, ten minutes, you know, the nightly news or or what mm-hmm. have you. Um, well, let's kind of talk about something uh, else that fits with it, even though it's kind of not as important in, in the hierarchy. But I think it kind of shows uh, the concerted effort against him. Um, North Korea during the week made some just completely out-of-bounds comments and says way more about them than it does their target, Joe Biden. It basically said Joe Biden need to be taken out like a you know a sick dog and taken out back and shot. Um, I cannot remember any time, even even in times of war almost, where people made comments, you know, world figures made comments about another country's world figure 
like this. Um, I guess, like I said, it says more about North Korea. Um, but, Tim, what were your thoughts when you read that? Well, like what they did was they called Biden a, a rabid dog who should be beaten to death with a stick. That's not the first time this year that they've said something about him back in the spring. They took some shots at him. Uh, but this is by far the worst thing they said. And I'm going to tell you uh, the, the long and short of why they did that. I believe fully that they are probably trying to appeal to uh, Donald Trump's ego. And, well, it worked because he tweeted, well, he's not not a rabid dog. He's real sleepy and he's real dumb and blah, blah, blah. And then, but, it, but you know, you're a friend of mine and let's get together and let's make a deal because you make your best deal with me, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, that's what North Korea was trying to do. Can you see any other reason they would do that all of a sudden? Yeah, I would definitely not think that Joe Biden would be, you know, target number one for North Korea. Um, but they wanted to curry favor. But it kind of shows, and and to me it's um, it's kind of telling that they really don't have a very sophisticated operation because obviously it's not a foregone conclusion that, that Joe Biden will get the nomination, but all this uh, attention's being heaped on him. I kind of get the feeling that he's becoming a much more sympathetic figure, and all these attacks on him actually help him because it makes him, one, look more sympathetic, and two, more resilient because while he's not necessarily leading the pack in every poll, he's in the game. You know, if this was the four-person race, uh, horse race, Kentucky Derby, He's in the shot where you can see the finish line, you know, and, or and wherever he is, the leader of the pack, he's there. Um, and every poll, no matter what state or, or nationally or whatever, even though he's taking more shots than anybody. Tim, I'm what do you take, think this says about Joe Biden? I, I'm going to take issue with you on one point that you made. Uh, okay. I, I think they're a little bit more sophisticated over there than we give them credit for. I think this was they, – they wouldn't care who it was – as long as it uh, stoked uh, Donald Trump's ego, and they'll use that and use Trump like a, a dirty dish towel like they've been doing, and they know that, that how to push Donald Trump's buttons, and that's one of the ways to do it, uh, by not only bragging on him, but by you know, attacking his enemies, uh, political enemies in this country. And and I'm sure that just tickled Donald Trump to death, and they're probably sitting over there in Pyongyang just just laughing out of their chairs about it. David, are you there? David? Well, apparently I have lost David, folks. I don't know what has happened, but he is gone, and that leaves me on here alone. I don't know if you're listening to me, but I'm going to keep talking. Um, David, are you with me? Hey, I think I'm back on the air. Tim uh, may be calling back in soon. We're kind of holding for our guest who's going to call in any minute. We were talking about uh, Joe Biden and um, what is, you know, kind of what all this means that he's getting attacked uh, from so many quarters. Tim, I guess, is, was thinking that North Korea is more sophisticated. I, the reason I kind of said what I said was that. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren could end up being the nominee. Pete Buttigieg could end up being the nominee. And, of course, um, the uh, I guess Bernie Sanders is not out of this thing. He could be the nominee. But yet none of those three folks get attacked like Joe Biden has gotten attacked. But um, that's kind of where I was coming from on that. Uh, let me 
go ahead and welcome back to the Kudzu Vine for the second time, Miss Sonia Van Meter. Welcome, Sonia. Hey. Hey, uh, we just had a little bit of technical difficulty, but I think we're back together, and I think Tim's on the line, too. Um, Tim, you back with us? Yes, sir. All right. Don't know what happened, but we don't care. We want to talk Texas politics, not audio difficulties. Uh, but, Sonia, <laughs> the last time you were on the show, you, you were talking about that incredible Texas Senate campaign, and, and really Beto O'Rourke ran just such an amazing race because Texas hadn't been competitive. So I kind of feel like we got to start off with him this time. And while he had some really good moments like that kickoff in El Paso and like when he went to Arkansas at the um, gun show and really found some consensus for those folks, he had good moments. But all in all, he didn't have enough of, and now he's been, you know, he's dropped out of the race. What was kind of your opinion um, why, you know, his campaign never really, you know, caught spark to where he's still in the race? Well, there's a lot of theories on uh, on why Beto wasn't quite able to catch fire. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the problem was this. When he ran for U.S. Senate against um, Ted Cruz, he was running against one of the most unliked people in all of federal government. And so you know, he, was, he was charming and warm and charismatic, but he was also standing next to a great big void of personality. Um, so naturally, you know, there, there was a, you know, when you have a youthful foil like that, it's, it's easy to suddenly become a hero. And, and this is not to take anything away from Beto. I mean, he, he did run an incredible race. He got a lot of people fired up about, a lot of Democrats fired up about Texas politics in a way they hadn't been in two decades. Um, and so he, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for that. The problem is when you're running for president, you, you're not necessarily running against just that one person. You know, we have an incredibly crowded Democratic primary. And, you know, so many of them are incredibly likable, you know, for better or for worse, uh, you know, Vice President Biden, you know, he's, he is, you know, the ultimate charm guy, you know, he, that was, that was his shtick for eight years as, as Barack's second. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, and she's showing up support left and right, the Bernie people, fiercely loyal supporters. So, you know, when you're, the, when you're the only guy running against, you know, somebody like Senator Ted Cruz, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of shore up support, but, uh, you know, this, this Democratic primary is chock full of, of interesting and varied uh, opponents. And so, you know, he just wasn't quite able to, to, to make the transition from, from state guy to, to, to presidential. Um, but the, the state of Texas forever owes him a debt uh, because the infrastructure that he helped to put in place, his, his volunteer network, his supporter network, um, you know, the donors, they all realize what happens when, uh, when they keep their money in state rather than sending it elsewhere. Um, you know, the state of Texas has a huge debt of gratitude to Beto. And truthfully, I would love to see him come back to Texas and, uh, and take a second stab uh, at a Senate run. Yes. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to that as well because you do have a, a Texas Senate race. Um, John Cornyn, who is uh, the incumbent senator, senators running for um, – Re-election, not probably as well known as uh, Ted Cruz, even though he's been around longer. Um, mm -hmm. He's running, and I believe you already have candidates announced for the race. They've already started building their campaign and um, you know raising money. Although I guess there's still time to file as well. Kind of give us the lay of the land on who might face John Cornyn and their prospects. Well, sure, sure. Uh, so the Texas uh, the Senate race is, is almost as crowded as, uh, as the Democratic primary for president. There's a lot of people running. Um, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest name in the race so far is going to be M.J. Hager. And M.J., uh, you may know, you may remember her from, when, from last cycle when she ran uh, for Congress against John Carter in Texas uh, 31. She had a fantastic announcement video that went super viral. She was you know, she was on a motorcycle, and she was talking about all the various doors she'd had to kick in over the course of her, uh, over the course of her life and over the course of her military career. She, uh, she has great name recognition in Texas already because of that. Um, you know, she's, she's, already, she's already putting up very impressive fundraising numbers, so she's got that going for her. Um, but we've also got, you know, a slew of other people running. So, uh, for example, we've got... Um, uh, a woman named Amanda Edwards. She's a Houston uh, city council, uh, a city councilor, 
uh, and a lawyer. She, um, you know, she is responsible for a district that's almost as big as a congressional district. And, you know, she's already won. Uh, she's already proven that she knows how to get into office uh, in a very, very competitive race. Um, and, you know, she's a woman of color, which is something that Democratic primary voters are going to be all about this cycle. Um, but then if you're looking for a more establishment kind of, you know, familiar face, uh, we've got Chris Bell. He was also a Houston-based lawyer. He ran for governor uh, against Rick Perry several years ago. Um, and he's, he sort of represents the sort of the Joe Biden wing of the party, if you will, you know, kind of a little bit more moderate, a little bit more old school. Um, if, if you're one of, those, one of those Democrat voters who just wants to get the normal back, just wants to bring things back to sanity, he is going to be a very appealing candidate. If you're looking for a young person, if you're looking for uh, a younger woman, there's a woman named Christina Ramirez. She uh, is a nonprofit founder and a civil rights activist. She, uh, she founded an, an organization that helps to engage and, uh, and reach out to young uh, Latinx voters. Um, so, you know, she'll have, she'll have a lot of the, you know, the newness on her. Uh, again, another woman of color. Uh, she's, and she's an organizer, most importantly. Um, and, if, and if there's anyone that knows how to turn out uh, voters during election, it's someone that's done, done professional organizing. Um, and then you've also got uh, Royce West, who is, you know, currently a state senator, um, African-American man, super, super accomplished, you know, already part of the, the Democratic establishment. Um, you know, the question, the question that, that is sort of, you know, at hand, though, is who's going to be able to raise the money? And then, of course, who's going to be the one that, that sort of shores up the enthusiasm? Because the truth of the matter is, I think if Beto were to decide to come back, I know he's already on record saying that he's not going to do this. But if enough people were to reach out to him and say, we need this, you know, your star is still on the rise, you know, Texas needs you to come back and do this, I think that I think he would have a pretty easy time clearing that field because, I mean, whatever he did nationally, he's still very popular in Texas. Yes. Well, let's talk about one more figure that kind of relates to this. He's still in the presidential race, but his campaign, he's not in the you know top tier. And I think he's mm -hmm. been rumored to possibly – come back to the state and run for Senate as well. And that's Julian Castro. Kind of assess his campaign, and then if he decides he's just not going to get the nomination, where does he go from there? Uh, well, let me go ahead and just say this on the record. Uh, I, I have done some consulting for that campaign, so um, I'm, I'm kind of in the tank for him. He's, he's kind of my guy. Uh, but I will say <laughs> this, you know, I mean, I, I love him, but, you know, his, his polling is not where he needs it to be. You know, he failed to qualify for the, for the most recent Democratic debate, which is generally thought to be the sort of death knell uh, for political campaigns. Um, but the great thing about Julian is that intellectually and, and from an experience perspective, the man is a heavyweight. Um, you know, I think that was kind of one of the biggest uh, differences between – between Julian and Beto in, this, in terms of the way that they ran their campaigns, Beto was all about charisma. He was all about rallying people. He was all about, you know, telling it like it is, so to speak, and not being afraid to drop the occasional F-bomb, which, you know, just made him so charming and so likable, whereas Julian is, is running a more, um, certainly not ideologically conservative, but more conservative in that, you know, he wanted to talk about policy. He wanted to roll out all these ideas that were, you know, not necessarily big ticket damn ideas, but certainly ideals that the Democrats would be able to get behind. Um, you know, he was speaking to to a lot of marginalized communities in a way that the Democrats really like, um, and he was rolling out some really interesting and really aggressive policies across the board. But at the end of the day, you know, he just he doesn't seem to have the X factor that Democratic primary voters are looking for. And I don't know what that is. I think my theory is that that X factor is that Democrats just want some semblance of normal back. They want to they wanna look at their president and think, this is familiar. I remember this. But more importantly, I think to every Democratic voter is, does this candidate that I like have the ability to beat Donald Trump in a head-to-head matchup? Um, and, you know, given, given some of the vitriol that our, our president has uh, directed at the Latinx community, uh, there might be some concern that there won't be, you know, enough support in a general election um, to sort of to justify having a candidate like Julian Castro. Truly disappointing to me. But the great thing about Julian is that he is, 
so well positioned to do so much, even if this doesn't work out for him. Um, you know, he was he was already rumored to have been shortlisted in 2016 for the VP slot, and I think that there are several candidates. Joe Biden, for example, uh, Elizabeth Warren for another, he would make an absolutely fantastic vice presidential candidate for. Um, and if he decides that that's not what he wants, uh, you know, certainly he can, he can come back to Texas. Uh, you know, plenty of work to be done here around the state. Um, he could easily, you know, sort of vie for a, for a cabinet position. He's already served as, as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under one administration. So, uh, you know, he, he's, he's still young. There's a lot of opportunity for him down the line. Um, but I mean, he's not out yet. And I, I say that both as a, as a professional political operative and someone who is a little, a little in the tank for, for Julian Castro. Yes. And that's the thing of this field. I think a lot of Democrats would be happy with a ton of these candidates. Um, oh, sure. And I'm going to give you my theory before I pass it to Tim for his question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is on this race. I think there's a portion of the electorate that their number one goal is, you know, we got to remove Donald Trump. It doesn't matter who it is. Absolutely. Just he's got to get out. Got to be the safe choice. And then I think mm-hmm. another fo- set of the folks want to make history. And that's their number mm-hmm. one thing that they, you know, 2016 would have been big history and either make history that way or some other way. And then um, other folks really want the most liberal, um, you know, progressive candidate they can find. And that's probably where, you know, better works kind of squeezed out. He couldn't make history, probably wasn't the safest choice. And he probably wasn't still the most liberal progressive because he had to serve in West Texas. And, and that <laughs> still you can't be as far left as somebody, say, in Massachusetts or somewhere else in the country. That's just my theory. Um, I'm going to pass it to Tim, and there's still plenty of topics to cover. Tim? Uh, good evening, uh, Miss Van Meter. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Uh, It's been in the news in the past week that both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are are in the process of hiring staff in Texas. Now, is that just for the primary and caucus that you have? Because I believe you have both in that state. Are they expecting Texas to be a battleground state um, in the general election? You know, there's a lot of theories on that. Um, but, you know, the thing about Texas, you know, every, everyone assumes, everyone knows the general understanding is that we're a super, super, super red state. And, you know, based on the numbers, you know, that we've seen in the last few elections, you know, that seems like a fair assessment until you take a look at the actual percentage of, of registered voters who actually turn out to vote. Um, I do believe, me personally, that Texas is going to be a battleground state. I don't think it's likely that the Democrats take it, but I think we're definitely going to make the Republicans work for it. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's, you know, that's, that's definitely worth something because, you know, Republicans are used to having Texas all to themselves. You know, they haven't had to spend a ton of money to win here, uh, you know, every four years when they run for a president. Um, and this year it's going to be, or next year it's going to be different. They're going to have to invest resources. And, you know, Texas is such a massive, massive place, so many media markets and expensive media markets, um, you know, that in order to hold this state, they're going to have to shell out some money and shell out some resources and spend time here. And those are, that's money and time and resources they're not going to be able to spend, you know, in other places that they, that they already know they're going to have to fight for. So, you know, I, I, think it's, I think Texas is still a long shot for a Democrat, but it also depends on the Democrat, and it also depends on how motivated Democrats are. You know, one thing that we are seeing here in Texas is that the Democrats are growing their numbers. Every year we see more and more people willing to turn out, um, self-identifying as Democrats. Republican numbers seem to be holding kind of stagnant. You know, they seem to be replacing themselves, but they're not growing their ranks. And as the suburbs, um, you know, turn turn from red to purple to blue, which they you know they're consistently been doing over the last few years. Um, you know, there's just the the momentum is definitely in favor of the Democrats. Now, you know, it's been a, it's been a long, long time coming, and it's not like the Republicans could have shored up any more support for themselves. So there's really nowhere for anyone to go but left. Um, mm-hmm. and, but, uh, and- but yeah, I think if you are starting to staff up. Uh, it's because you know, especially in a primary, in a primary, it's definitely going to be a battleground turf. Everyone's going to have to fight for every inch here. 
Now, now in 2018, Beto O'Rourke actually got more raw votes than any Democrat in in the history of of the state down there. Uh, Uh You you were saying front and center that there's no way that was an anomaly, that Democrats are ready to compete on a statewide level and right now. I sure do think so. I think the momentum has has, has found our, found its way here finally, and I think that mm-hmm. you know what Beto did for Texas, or for Texas Democrats rather, is demonstrate what can happen when you really concentrate and focus your efforts. Um, you know, there's so many Democrats here who you know they always thought, why should I bother voting? Texas is a red state. Why does it even matter? Why should I bother going to the polls? And now they know. Now they know that you know there's actually so many more of them than they realize. You know, and one of the jokes you'll hear among political consultants is that we hate yard signs. You know, yard signs don't vote. Why should we spend valuable campaign resources on yard signs? Well, I'll tell you why. Because sometimes that one person putting out that Beto sign indicates to the other people in the neighborhood that you're not alone. You may, be, you may think that you're the only person in this, in this red, red, red village, red, 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 you know, county, red, red, red district. Um, that, that wants to vote Democratic, but sometimes that's enough to to, to demonstrate that you're not you're not flying solo on this. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, now, I think I think Texas is up and coming. Now uh, you, you know it's also been in the news a lot nationally about the number of Republican uh, Republicans in Congress that are choosing to retire, or move on to something else, or whatever. <laughs> One of them happens to be. An old friend from Texas by the name of Pete Olson over in the 22nd District there around Houston. Mm -hmm. There are already 15 Republicans and three Democrats in the race, making it the largest field in the whole country. Why so (laughs) much interest in that particular district? Well, um, I mean, to be quite frank, your guess is as good as mine. But I think there's particularly there's particular interest in the Republican side because, you know, in in Texas, you know, when when a Republican gets a hold of a congressional seat, uh, he doesn't tend to let it go until he decides that he's done with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the same thing happens in Massachusetts and in Maryland on the Democratic side of things. You know, once you get that office, it's basically yours until you decide to seat it. And so. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Representative Pete decided that he wasn't going to run for re-election, it opened up a window that is small and and hard to hard to get through and doesn't open very frequently. So um, I you know I think that's probably a part of the reason you've got such a crowded field there. But also it's still um, you know I know it's it's definitely on the watch list for uh, for red to blue. I know the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is looking at that district pretty hard um, mm-hmm. and, and thinking about how much time and energy and, and resources they need to be shoveling at that, uh, that area. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think the Republicans still see that as, as, a, as a reasonably safe seat for the Republican Party. So mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that, would be, that would be my guess for why it's so excited. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the Dems are looking at it thinking this might be one of the ones we can get. The Republicans are going, ooh, this is my opportunity to level up. You know, I'm already a state senator, I'm already a state legislator, I'm already a council member, but now I can, I can sort of, you know, I'm looking for my, for my, next, my next promotion, the next rung on the ladder. So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm wanting to ask you one more question before I throw it back to David, and, and that is about a, another story that I read um, in, in one of the newspapers down there. There is actually t- realistic talk of the Democrats flipping the state house, is it that competitive now on on the legislative level as well? Absolutely, there is there is a, a top to bottom of the ballot effect being seen um, all over the state. Uh, you know, we definitely picked up a few more seats in the in the last in the last election. Um, all the Democratic organizations are mobilizing to to capitalize on that momentum. Um, you know, for 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 whatever Donald Trump has done in terms of galvanizing the Democratic Party, he is a, he has been a gift. Uh, you know, he's been an absolute gift because all of a sudden, you know, he's he's the enemy that simply must be defeated. He's Voldemort. Uh, you know, you know, the Democrats look at him and go, 
You know, this is the thing that we cannot let stand. And, you know, there's so much trickle down. Uh, you know, what, I mean, they're turning people out, of course, for the top of the ballot. But, you know, Democrats are motivated right now. And if, if you're, you know, Emily's List or League of Conservation voters or, or you know, anyone else with a vested interest in, uh, in, in picking up a few more seats in the state ledge, you know, you, you smell the blood in the water. And so they know that there's going to be probably prehistoric uh, turnout in 2020. Um, and so everyone's making moves to make sure that their candidates are well-positioned, well-funded, uh, that their name ID is out there because these, these Democratic, new Democratic voters are going to be turning out uh, in 2020 to help take uh, Donald Trump down. And even if they know they can't necessarily do that, there's still, that's still a lot of new body count, uh, you know, voting for all the way down the ballot. So. Well, I can, I can uh, part w- with, with this statement. Nothing would make me happier than to uh, celebrate election night next year by watching and waiting for late returns from the battleground state of Texas. And with that, I am going to throw it back to you, David. Yes, Tanya, one one final question about Texas, and and that would be um, the district that borders – the Mexican border, and it's held by a Republican, but it's a very purple district. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it is the most um, – uh, it is the largest non-at-large district land size in the country, and that's the one that uh, Will Hurd currently holds. Now, I will preface this. If they're going to be Republicans, I'd rather have Will Hurd's than, say, Louis Gohmert's, um, but I'm sure in Texas, y'all want to win where you can win, and that's the spot to win. But now he's vacating the seat. Um, and it seems like it's going to be hard to replicate somebody that's of that quality in the Republican Party. Uh, what's the outlook for that district? Well, um, <laughs> I don't want to speak out of school, but I would say that uh, Ms. Gina Ortiz-Jones, who ran against uh, Representative Heard last cycle, she announced her candidacy for the 2020 cycle, you know, just a couple of months after the last election. And I got to be honest, I think that when, when Representative Hurd announced his retirement, he effectively handed that seat to her. Um, I think the Republican Party, he, you know, his reasons for leaving right now have been pretty clear. You know, it's, it's Trump has, has sort of abandoned the values that, that Hurd has spent his career uh, you know, dedicated to. You know, that he, was, he was the last remaining uh, man of color. In, in Congress, uh, in the Republican Party, and you know that you know that district is, does not lend itself um, to to Trump style politics. Um, and you know, Ms. Ortiz Jones only lost by about 900 votes last time in a in a district where there were more than 200,000 ballots cast. So you know, she's already got the name ID. Her fundraising has been incredible, uh, and I think you're right. I just don't think that there's going to be a Republican. Uh, who can who can really bring bring a match to her? So I'd I'd like to say thank you to Mr. Hurd uh, for his service, and then for ha- handing it off to my team. <laughs> Very good of you, sir. Yes, maybe he'll make some money in lobbying, which I think that's one of the reasons he's getting out. And then mm-hmm. when the Republicans lose, they'll need somebody to put the party back together, and maybe somebody like him, if not him can be you know, that person to lead it to sanity. Because, I mean, in a democracy, we know we're going to have two parties, at least. So we can't just expect there not to be a different party. So if they're going to exist, let's let them be of, of quality and character, uh, not like the current leader of their party, Donald Trump. Um, so, But, Sonia, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Before you leave, uh, if people want to read you uh, either on social media or if you write elsewhere – kind of give our listeners a chance to find you <laughs> well i'm not much for writing i do tend to uh to get quoted every now and then in various uh political publications but if you're just dying to hear my particular brand of, of snark and sarcasm people are welcome to follow me on twitter at the handle bourbon face so okay exactly like you would expect bourbon face a tragic nickname bestowed on me from my 30th birthday, but it's all politics on that feed. 
Yes, well, and I'm not a very good speller, baby, and I think I can handle that one. Um, <laughs> well, next time we need some Texas politics information, we want to call on you again because you brought it tonight. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was always fun. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. All right. Uh, Ms. Sonia Van Meter of Texas, uh, involved in so many campaigns and really understands that state, uh, and it's quite an exp- expansive state. With a lot of different, um, you know, folds and and characters, if you will. Um, well, Tim, um, let's kind of pick back up and um, start talking about another aspect of our show topic, and that would be the poll from Georgia. Uh, AJC did a poll, and it showed some really fascinating top line results. We were excited. Then we did find out later that possibly. The uh, sample skews a bit too democratic, not too democratic in that straight line Democrats, but too college educated was the you know the word I had heard from some of our sources. Um, kind of, uh, what's your uh, take on? You know, you can even talk about the initial numbers if you will. Well, the initial numbers, like you said, look great. They had Biden up by eight. On Trump, Sanders up by four, four, Warren up by three, Buttigieg up by three, and uh, Harris up by three. A clean sweep among our top candidates. But, as you said, they way, way oversample college grads, from what I can see, probably by about 29%. I'd say this poll, as a result, is at least... Five points off, maybe more. And, and uh, but as a result, we we only really get two useful pieces of info, I think, from this poll on the presidential side. Number one, uh, regardless of the numbers, it does show that Biden is the strongest general election Democratic candidate against Trump. And number two, I think it clearly shows that Georgia's going to be a battleground. If you take five points away from everybody, uh, either Biden has a statistically insignificant lead or Trump does against some of the other candidates. So there we are. Uh, you know, it's a five-point five race three years ago. It's it's going to be closer now. You you can see it's going to be closer. We've got some big congressional races in this state. We've got two U.S. Senate races in this state. This is going to be battleground zero, I think, in the deep south uh, next year, maybe even more so than Florida, North Carolina, and some of them, although Florida has more electoral votes. If we're having a good night in Georgia, David, don't you think we're going to be having a good night uh, across the country? Most definitely. And by the way, favorite comment of the week was on a post about this poll that they're talking about Florida. And they said figuring out what Florida politics is going to do is like betting on drunk pigs racing. Uh, (laughs) Never heard anything so good, uh, at least this week. Um, But, you know, back to Georgia – I think you're right. I mean, Joe Biden, his lead was so substantial that it shows that the state is in play if somebody runs that strong. Now, that could be, hey, people know Joe Biden, and if somebody else gets as known as Joe Biden and people like him as much, they could run that well too. Or you know, so, so, but, but you knew that the state could be competitive. Now, it's not the point where, hey, just run anybody, and we're going to win. That's where the sample got flawed. And there was problems. Mm-hmm. There was a few more things I took from it. There were some U.S. Senate numbers. Now, obviously, somebody got to, you know, they have to know who the nominee is going to be. In fact, on the Republican side, you got to know who the nominee is going to be, who Brian Kemp's going to appoint, and then mm-hmm. who's going to run against them. Um, you know, all of those factors. I guess Matt Lieberman is in that race, um, that side of the thing. But nevertheless, David Perdue was actually more popular than Johnny Isaacson, which absolutely shocked me. And, and there were this poll, if you read the cross tabs and they are available, it's like 106 pages. I do have a day job. I couldn't go from that with that much of a fine tooth comb. But I have a feeling that there may be some Republicans that don't like Johnny Isaacson because he's not as red meat oriented. 
David Perdue and others, and that's where the fall-off comes. But nevertheless, if he's doing that well, he's going to be possibly harder to beat than we anticipated. Um, and this could be kind of like Kentucky, where Georgia's slightly red, but a really toxic fit loses points, and that's what Donald Trump is. And maybe David Perdue and whomever Brian Kemp appoints runs ahead of Donald Trump at the top of the ballot. And, you know, Donald Trump could lose this state by a point or two, but then they could win by a point or two. Now, there's not going to be drastic ticket splitting, but there could be just a little. So that's going to be something to watch. Another thing, and it doesn't, it's not on the ballot now, but it will be on 2022. If this poll is this skewed and Brian Kemp's approval rating is at 54%, I don't exactly understand how he's gotten that popular. I think, you know, when he had the ads, he's blowing things up and burning things up and everything else. Maybe expectations for him were so low, and he's exceeded those, which is kind of hard not to because he had set the bar so low when he ran those ads. Uh, maybe that's why he's, um, you know, coming off like he is. But, Tim, how has Brian Kemp added that much? Because his, his approval rating was in the mid-40s the last time they did a poll just right after he took office, and now it's gained nearly 10 points. So where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, as he took office was the was his lowest approval rating, and it was after a very contentious election with a lot of questions about, you know, if everybody that wanted to vote got to vote or if people were kicked off the voting rolls that shouldn't have been or if there was a, a little... Uh, underhanded stuff afoot shall we say and that has pretty much died down as he has taken office and and gone along more people are accepting him as governor uh his approval rating now is up to like 25 percent among democrats now that's why i always thought he had a high approval among republicans but democrats and independents have fueled that rise a little bit i think he uh is in kind of a year-long honeymoon period he only did one really controversial thing which was with uh you know, abortion, but otherwise, um, he really hasn't done anything really controversial and has actually uh, done a couple of surprising things, especially with some appointments, and I just think it's all all added added up a little bit. Uh, the, The thing to do with Brian Kemp is to go back and see a couple of years from now what that approval rating is. And the final thing, of course, is the governor of the state. He is benefiting uh, remarkably, of course, from the economy. Uh, Like other elected officials, if there's a good economy or the perception of one, then uh, those at the top benefit, and he is the executive of the state. So there we are. Yeah, I think you're right about the economy. Now, I, this is man. I really wish Catherine was on this on this week for this topic, and um, we'll have to ask her about it next week. Um, but you know that one bill that it was so controversial, it was really controversial, and mm, it, was. it theoretically could have lost um, the movie industry for Georgia. It looks like that's just not going to happen because of. Some of the work of Stacey Abrams and, and obviously Tyler Perry opening that studio, um, and, and you know that that's a big deal too. But mm-hmm. people are people just not voting or in this case approving or disapproving on that issue because if if the majority of the people uh, or at least a strong plurality because there are probably some undecideds um, agree that women should have more access to family planning than less. Wouldn't that cut more than it has, Tim? Uh, I'm not sure for a couple of reasons. Number one, you mentioned one. 
the 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 fallout if the movie industry had uh, jumped up and 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 started leaving the state in mass would have been uh, well you would have heard his approval rating uh, hit the bottom of the barrel with a very loud thud. Uh, but that didn't happen. None of that happened. So the threats of what was going to happen didn't happen. Secondly, with, with that particular subject, I have always felt that those in opposition to abortion were probably a little bit more virulent than those who you know, favored access to it or, 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 were, or were pro-choice. Perhaps that's because being, uh, you know, the, the pro-choice side has the law of the land technically still behind them, and the other side has been fighting, you know, the system, you know, fight the man, that sort of thing. So their opposition is a little more virulent. You know, when people are or against something, they, they register that opposition a little bit more, uh, seems like, when they're for something. So I think that affects it as well. Yes. Well, let's talk about another southern governor, um, one of the only one of the deep south and one of about three in the south, because I'll be honest, I, I think North Carolina's pretty southern when it comes right down to it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, John Bell Edwards. He won this election because David Vitter was such a mess of a personal life of a candidate. And, um, but then he got in office, and the economy was bad, and Do- John Bell Edwards did an incredible job keeping their government functional um, you know, with the tax rolls and be able to fund things that just the, you know, the blocking and tackling of education and transportation and things like that. And people said, you know, John Bell Edwards did a good job, but the state is still a very Republican-leaning state, yet he won. He got over 50 percent of the vote, even though Donald Trump visited the state state three times for Eddie Rasponi, I believe his name is. Um, Mm -hmm. How did John Bell Edwards do it, Tim? Well, you know, uh, number one, in in, um, Louisiana – a couple of the largest parishes with the largest African-American populations, they turned out heavily, heavily, just like what happened in Alabama in that Senate race over there. The same thing happened that happened in Alabama happened in Louisiana, and they turned out heavily. There was also another parish with a lot of votes in it, that Hillary Clinton actually lost and that John Bell Edwards did 20 points better than her and, and, and won that particular parish. So those two things coupled were just enough to give him uh, a, a two-point win, uh, which once again shows in the South when African Americans vote heavily Normally a very good night for Democrats, but this goes beyond that a little bit, David. Donald Trump campaigned heavily, put put his reputation on the line. You've got to do this for me. Don't let me lose, he said, in both Kentucky and there in Louisiana. Well, obviously, Kentucky, I consider it a southern state, even though it's really a border state. It's more southern than it is anything else. And so, too, is Louisiana, a very deep south state. They're they're states that Donald Trump, uh, let's not fool ourselves, very popular in, and probably is still very popular, and is going to win handily. But Trump's effect Obviously, only goes so far, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really. He put his political capital on the line, and it didn't pay off. Um, Not at I, all. I tell you, I, I did see something. There were talk, some statisticians were talking. You know, one everybody knows that yes, African American turnout was just through the roof, and that was essential. But then somebody made the point. You know, had um, John Bell Edwards had a hundred percent African American turnout in Louisiana. 
they still would have lost if he didn't recruit over some percentage of Trump voters. Uh, maybe it, maybe as high as thirty percent, and so it's kind of like a two-legged stool. And you always think of the stool having three legs, but it was mm-hmm. kind of like you had to have both, and that's the mm-hmm. secret. And I, and I'm you know, Paul heard me say this before. You got to have a multi-pronged strategy. Um, you can't just depend on one thing. You got to have both, <coughs> and so that'll be um, something to see if that can be replicated. Well, Tim, we got through a lot of uh, topics, and we got some really good Texas information. But until next week, it's been the Cozy Vine. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a... Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.